listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, before we get to today's interview, I want to tell you about an exciting development. Grief Out Loud recently partnered with BetterHelp. Have you heard of them? They provide online counseling and support with licensed counselors via video, phone call, real-time chat, and messaging. When BetterHelp reached out to us to ask if we wanted to partner, we thought, well, we better try it before we recommend it to you. So a few weeks ago, I signed up and got connected to a local counselor. It's been great. You know how when you try to find a counselor, especially in the before times, it took a lot of work? When you do finally connect with someone, you might have had to trek across town or even to a different town, navigating traffic and scheduling. With BetterHelp, I got connected in just a few days. The scheduling was super easy, and the commute just required me to walk across my house to a different room. If you're needing support and counseling, give BetterHelp a try. You can sign up using our specific Grief Out Loud link. It's betterhelp.com forward slash grief, and you'll get 10% off your first month. So once again, it's betterhelp.com forward slash grief. Okay, here's today's interview. So this episode was recorded on June 19th of 2020. And June 19th is a date some of you will be familiar with as Juneteenth. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. On June 19th of 1865, Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the Civil War had ended and that the enslaved were now free. It's important to note that this news came two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official on January 1st of 1863. Starting with some history is particularly appropriate for today's episode with Dr. Cami Fletcher. Dr. Fletcher is an associate professor of American and African American history at Albright College. She is also the president of the Collective for Radical Death Studies, whose mission is to interrogate the field of death studies and to decolonize and decenter whiteness while calling to radicalize death practices which includes research, writing, and community work. Dr. Fletcher's focus of study is on the history of African-American deathways and death work. In other words, the history of funeral and burial rites in the Black community, and how those were shaped and influenced by policies and events, like the institution of slavery, the Civil War, the rise of the Black undertaker during Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws in the mid-20th century, and more modern-day practices like RIP t-shirts. Dr. Fletcher also focuses on researching and teaching about the ways that death intersects with race, class, gender, religion, and region. She's the author of Real Business, Maryland's First Black Cemetery, Journeys into the Enterprise of Death, 1807 to 1920, and the co-author of Till Death Do Us Part, American Ethnic Cemeteries as Borders Uncrossed, which was just released in early spring of this year. Dr. Fletcher and I cover a lot in this episode, including the origins of how she became a death scholar, her work at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Baltimore, 
which is one of the oldest and largest African-American cemeteries. It was formed in 1872 by the Reverend James Peck in protest to segregation against the white Methodist church. We also talk about how modern-day funeral rites and practices in the black community are rooted in both protest and resistance against systems of oppression. We get a little personal when we talk about her nephew, Willie, who died of gun violence in 2017, and how the RIP t-shirts that her sister, Willie's mother, had made became a part of Dr. Fletcher's process of grief. Dr. Fletcher, thank you so much for taking time today to be with me on Grief Out Loud. Oh, absolutely. When you contacted me, I thought, sure, I'd I'd definitely like to engage in this space. So thank you. Since we've had that first contact, I've so enjoyed watching videos and reading articles and all of the work that you've created. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation today and helping our listeners know a little bit more about your work. One of the first things I thought is not everyone grows up to want to be a death study scholar, (laughs) you know, like it's not your uh, typical career path. So what what inspired you to do this work and what's your personal connection to the work as well? Yeah, I didn't consider myself a death studies scholar until 2018. Um, you know, I'm trained as a historian, um, background in women's studies. And so I was literally just following the experience of Africans in America, learning, researching, documenting social movements, um, looking at everything from a critical and, and gendered standpoint. Um, And then when I started my doctoral graduate work at Morgan State, I was um, immediately informed by my dissertation chair, who became my mentor throughout my process at Morgan about Mount Auburn. A lot of people don't know about Mount Auburn Cemetery in Baltimore, this autonomous, what I learned was this autonomous Black cemetery. And they were looking to restore it and preserve it because at that time it was, it had just really gone into disarray, overgrown, and it was still uh, privately owned by the first, or the, yeah, the first, the oldest African-American Methodist church. And I was struck by just how important this was and how this is yet another place to understand the experience of Africans in America. Um, right here, you know, the landscape and all of that. So once I got just pulling back one layer on this historic cemetery, you know, kind of the who's who of Black America, um, you know, I just went digging into this. It became my dissertation, published on it, um, and it's really becoming uh, my life's work. Then I was re- I was recently, like I said, in 2018, I was contacted by uh, the Death Positive Movement to present. They were having a death salon, this conference where folks that were death positive, and I didn't even know what that meant then, uh, but it sounded like a misnomer to me. What's positive about death? Um, <laughs> you know, and I, it was at Mount Auburn, the Mount Auburn established in 1832 is the start of the rural garden cemetery. And I thought, oh my God. I'm presenting my research at from Mount Auburn in Baltimore that people don't know. It's Black-owned, um, it's beautiful, wonderful work, but they don't know it at Mount Auburn. This is amazing. I would love to do this. And so I got introduced to all these folks on the ground doing this grassroots, green burial, death-positive work. And immediately I was struck by there was no critical lens to this. This was predominantly white people. And they knew this though. They knew they were white, and, but, they, but it was this idea that death is the great equalizer. And I was like, where? <laughs> 
How is it when we have Jim Crow cemeteries? Number one, that's my research that I do. We have in the way in which black people are dying, how is that? So the two intersected and immediately, you know, I was welcomed into this work. I wanted to, you know, in, insert myself into this work and, and that's really what I've done. So absolutely still a historian, but at that moment um, I embraced the title of death scholar. And And in this like, connecting with the death positivity movement, which I agree. First time I heard that, I was like, I don't, I don't understand that term. But after some learning, it makes a little more sense. Yeah. In September 2019, just this past fall, you launched the Collective for Radical Death Studies. And tell us about that. Like, what does that term mean? And what is the work of that? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's wonderful, important work. Um, I was teaching a, a class at my previous institution, on African-American death ways and death work. Uh, it was a 200 level class. So it was kind of, you know, an introductory um, course on history and using my research to invite students to history. Um, and I knew Rhonda Ragsdale had a very large platform on Twitter where she had this Saturday school. And so much of my work, I'm also, I declare myself to be a public historian. Um, I've done projects with the public, uh, with the cemeteries. And I said, oh, you know, this is one of these ways that I can engage with the public. So every Saturday, she has this hashtag, so just. And we all know in academia that there's a class bias there. You have to have a certain level of income to even engage in these kind of higher level thinking discussions. Um, but her so just Saturday school class allows scholars and practitioners and whomever to engage whoever wants to engage the public in this way. And I, I love that. So in teaching this class, I reached out to her and said, hey, Rhonda, can I do a so just death? And she was like, yeah, sure. And so in doing that hashtag, um, it was first, it was a way for my students to engage um, in this kind of global world. And it was also, you know, a way for me to continue this kind of grassroots work that I'd been exposed to, right? And there was scholars from around the world, um, and particularly Hannah Gould in Australia. And she, you know, got this hashtag, retweeted it, and was like, you know, we need to do something with this. Like, yeah, death is radical. Let's decolonize. And it was like, yeah, let's do that. And we just began to form, you know, have officers and have this platform and really serve as, you know, an educational space. And so now we are officially a 501c3 nonprofit based in education, you know, we're, we're looking to roll out some classes and workshops on decolonizing death studies, meaning to decenter whiteness and radicalizing death practice, meaning to put black indigenous uh, people of color at the center of death ways. And it, it's really the sharp kind of radical shift um, in, in death studies that we think that people need. And when you say the term death ways, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, death ways. Um, Eric Seaman writes about this in, in his book, Death in the New World. He talks about these death ways. And it's this idea, literally speaking, the way in which people die. How are people dying? But can also be expanded to um, last rites, rituals, you know, burial, these things as well. And he argues that, you know, back in 
pre-colonial time period, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, when you have these kind of clash of cultures, um, as American um, scholars, we, we talk about this Atlantic world culture that was created, right? So it's not that people from Europe were just coming to what became America, but it was this back and forth traffic. And this was creating culture, a brand new American uh, Atlantic world culture. And his point was that death ways is really a way to understand who somebody is, right? And so when I talk about death ways, I'm surprised that when people generally, whether they're on the ground with grassroots movements or if they're scholars, they don't start with the wage and ways in which people die, especially um, this Eurocentric approach. It really starts with the architecture of the headstone that's left, right? In New England, that's what it's all about. These cemeteries have been preserved. Look at who made the headstone, how beautiful they are. The epigraph, what can they tell us? That's important work. Do not get me wrong. But when you're talking about people of color and colonialism, genocide, slavery, government e experimentation, white supremacy in the ways in which we died that became this that shaped our lives we have to start with the death ways and not the death work if you will thank you for that distinction and it it makes me wonder you've you've written and talked about death as resistance and i'm wondering if that connects in some way as well yeah absolutely absolutely in studying the cemetery um you know that i i wrote about in my, my published volume, Till Death Do Us Part, um, and I'm writing a separate single monograph on it, Ain't She Got No People, I was just struck by this church started in 1787, um, Sharp Street Church in Baltimore. And in 1802, they have now gathered enough funds, um, got the land to have a brick and mortar church. But only five years later, you know, they spend six hundred and ninety dollars in eighteen oh seven, right? The equivalent to thousands, you know, you economic folks can calculate that, right? Why was it so important for them to spend six hundred and ninety dollars in eighteen oh seven for land for the cemetery? When understand now, this church is connected to the Methodist Church. This is not AME, this is not AME Zion, and they specifically wanted to stay tethered to this white United Methodist Church, and they did not want to be buried in the Methodist Cemetery, um, Lovely Lane, you know, that they had here. So that just sent me a fire as a, as a historian tracking the breadcrumbs. Why? Why do you need the cemetery? Why is it so important? I, you know, what, 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 what? And I began to see the different iterations of the cemetery it went through four phases that these folks were pushing back against this white supremacist system. And in the language of the deed and in how they were talking throughout these records, they wanted burial rights because burial is about land and land ownership. And we understand that in this society, black folks cannot own land, even if you were free blacks. And there was a lot of freedom for free blacks in Baltimore, but that system of slavery still oppressed them. There were always disenfranchised. There were always laws. Of course, black folks fought back. So my point is, is that these people were using this burial ground to fight back against burial rights. Later on, they used this burial ground when society was saying, you're not a citizenship. Yes, I am. Here's my material culture. Look at this gravestone. Look at this um, 
iron gate that we have up here. My name is here. They named the walkways inside the cemetery, you know, after certain prominent black folks that were dismissed to white society. But in this cemetery, you are somebody and you've left your legacy right here. Well, that makes me think too, Dr. Fletcher, about the other way you've talked about this when you talk about death and funeral rites and practices in the Black community as reclaiming of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, when you're talking about the institution of slavery, um, and a lot of times when people are talking about that here in the U.S., it's during the antebellum era, right? So you have this American revolution and, you know, we, as in white folks, white men, have thrown off the shackles of Britain during, during this war coming together, creating this constitution, and decided not to dismiss and divorce itself from slavery, but decide to double down on it and put it in the constitution. So that real 1800 to 1865, that plantation period, what does that mean for Black bodies, right? We are still enslaved. We are still seen as having no humanity. Our life doesn't matter. So why in the world would our death matter? But Black folks fought back. This is not a victim kind of narrative story. Always resistance. And in part of that, looking at what has come down as the second funerals, if the plantation, the slaveholder, the plantation owner, if you will, in quotes, because that's the thing, who really owns this land if I'm working it, is not going to give you that time off, right? This person has died. Um, Then we're just going to take autonomy and we're going to resist and do it in the cover of night near um, the slave quarters. You know, this is where many of the um, slave cemeteries and things were established. You see our ancestors just claiming this humanity. You know, I'm not going to let this person die and not be remembered and just be left to this open air burial. This is not a proper burial. This person will be remembered. And the other part of of humanity is really the emergence of the Black Undertaker, Uh, this Reconstruction Era Undertaker in the early 1900s, where you see a lot of this white backlash to the emancipation of African-Americans in 1865. You have this period of Reconstruction where you get a lot of historically Black colleges and universities, you get a lot of Black churches, Black communities, you know, thriving and just wanting to live and, you know, create um, this space of acceptance. After that, you know, 1877 and, and onward, you see Jim Crow, the law that says separate but equal, the law that says, and just really cements white superiority, you see a lot of lynchings happening. You see a lot of white violence happening. People are now talking about Black Wall Street, right, which is really the community of Greenwood, one of these Black communities that were founded right outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And folks have to understand that Black people are not saying we just want to have our own. We're having our own to self-preserve because white people are constantly being hostile against us. And I think that's a point that people don't understand even today. Why do you have HBCs? Why do you have these spaces? Because you're hostile and you don't want to include us or you want to include us in some kind of tokenism, stereotypical type way. So I say all of this to say that this white backlash and these lynchings and this violence where white people just go in, it's a massacre of Greenwood. 
They, they're jealous of what is going on in the black community. Um, the banks, the ambulance, the taxis, all of this thriving, the grocery stores, a lot of these lynchings that happened, the justification was in defense of white womanhood. You know, this white woman crying rape. Actually, this was about, th this was about striking a blow to black independence and autonomy. So what happens when that body is dangling from a tree? What happens when that body is cut open and, and mutilated and, and um, the white folks that came to see this lynching cut off fingers and cut off ears because they would do this to keep me mementos? This is dehumanization. That funeral home, that uh, funeral director provided humanity to that body. We can come and we can see this person, George Floyd, how he's supposed to look. We can give him his humanity, you know, in death. And so that's, that's what I mean when I say these things, when you look at the ways in which black folks are dying and you look at how our death rituals and how the funeral director has played a very important part in bringing um, that humanity back. Well, and, and coming forward into the present day, although I feel like I could talk with you for like five hours or 500 hours about all of the history that you know. And I think about how so often there's present day practices that are truly rooted in history. And oftentimes we don't know what that historical connection is. So I'm curious from your point of view, like of the current day funeral practices and, and death ways and death rites, what are the tiebacks to yeah, the historical like beginnings of those specifically in the black community? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and so much about it is is lost and we're still trying to, you know, uncover, right? Because like I say, with the second funerals during slavery, part of my research and I've worked on worked on trying to preserve and restore the slave cemeteries. The hardest thing is that this is on white private property. So you have to get access. But the ephemeral nature of it, right? Because there's a real idea when you read through these narratives, especially during the, the WPA records that the Library of Congress has, these um, narratives that during the Great Depression, putting academics back to work, um, they interview people who were enslaved. And so you're reading through this and there's a real spiritual contamination that's happening. Black folks did not want to be near white people in death. They did not want to be on their family plantations. They wanted to be left to themselves and their own um, devices. And some of that is about being hidden because white people love to insert themselves. And you can see from the slaveholders and the records, they're leading funerals, preaching at black folks' funerals. You know, so some of that really is hidden and, and hopefully we can, you know, re recover some of that stuff. But to your question about, you know, look, looking at that now and, and what's been carried down, the homegoing. I encourage all of you who's listening to this, look up homegoing documentary that features Isaiah Owens um, in Harlem, in Harlem, New York, and his work. Um, that tradition, Carla Holloway writes all about it and passed on, a uh, phenomenal scholar. Um, and Suzanne Smith and her work to serve the living in the homegoing ceremony. And there's certain characteristics that these scholars and in my own work I see um, has laid out. And much of this is the time. So we're living in an era of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, his funeral was completely on full public display on CNN. And I think that was an introduction to many Americans, you know, just what these last rites uh, rituals look like. 
and their importance. Um, the material culture, the gold coffin immediately struck me. Michael Jackson had a gold coffin. So now we're taking it to this level of saying this person is important. And like I said, with white culture, the term is ostentatious funeral. We do not want to use this. The funeral director is making us pay all this money. They're taking advantage of us. Material cultures is used to reject that Jim Crow stereotype of thug and mammy. Um, and so the time, the material culture, and when you see with the gospel music, when you see with the expressiveness, the moans, the amens, the fist in the air, that's where that healing begins. Oh, we're hurt, we're in pain, but that music, the expressive culture, we're healing. I mean, I don't, you know, grieving is forever. Anyone that's experienced close death is forever. It comes in waves is really how I experienced that. The healing um, really starts when you look at those rituals. So as we're talking about the ways in which current day funeral practices tie back to the historical roots, is there a way in which embalming is also part of that? Yeah, you know, so when you look at embalming, it really comes, uh, or it's really popularized, right, um, with the Civil War. And uh, Drew Faust, in her book, This Republic of Suffering, I think does a, a wonderful job of that, where folks are trying to preserve Lincoln's body. It's going all over, you know, the country. Um, and then people are trying to get the Civil War dead. Uh, back to their families. And so this idea of preservation is needed. And there's also on, on this side of in, embalming with medical advancement, because people, you have to understand that during this time period, and we're talking 1860s, 50s, right through 1900, cadavers are not just readily available. And so you need a fresh body, you know, if you will, and preserve it as long as you can to understand the, the inner workings. And so that's how embalming and being a science, because you have all of these patents coming out, you know, that's trying to not be toxic to the body, not be toxic to the person. So you just have a you, you just have a slew of tradesmen, really doing all of all of this. So all these three things are kind of going on at once. And that's important. Meanwhile, you have slavery has ended in 1865 and you have black folks who have some skills, right, from um, being carpenters on this plantation. Or you had free blacks in the north that had skills at carpentry, being able to use those skills to transition from this agrarian economy to this cash economy, right? So embalming is then used in this way to, as we even say right now, um, as Black folks, to make you look like yourself. Many times the casket is open. And I just wanna be clear when I say Black people, I am not talking about every single Black person. We're not homogenous. I'm talking about this collective experience born of slavery because religion is gonna be, is gonna intersect with this and have a, you know, a variation, class, region, but specifically when you're talking about this collective consciousness born of slavery, you know, that these are the ideas that are happening here. So embalming was, yeah, you know, this idea, I want to look like myself, is going to be open casket, we're going to mourn this person's life. And I think that's another thing that's different. It's a celebration of life listening to George Floyd, you know, watching on TV, listening uh, to what his brother and his kin was saying, that's exactly what I've experienced. You don't get up and talk about this person is dead. You start off with a story. This is who they were and this is who they were to me, 
you know, this is who this person was. And in the context of white supremacy and the stereotypes that seem, that try, that try to follow black people from life to death is, is just fiercely combated with these black rituals. No, 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 no. You got it messed up. I'm nobody's thug. I'm nobody's this. There's a whole kinship that loved this person. And you, you just, you just really see that. Well, it makes me think about kind of your personal connection to grief with that idea of knowing that, you know, your nephew died in 2017. And I, and you talked about like how important it is to be able to tell the story of the person's whole life. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your nephew. <laughs> Willie would get a kick out of this. Um, I mean, he just, he would, he's 10 years younger than me. Um, and, but I was still always that big auntie that I had this kind of presence of, of mentor. So he would come and stay with me um, during, you know, his spring break. Yeah, his spring break. And I wouldn't necessarily be on mine in college or when I was in graduate school. Um, but he was everybody's favorite cousin. You know, um, you, you have that and you absolutely have that in, in, the, in the black community. That fa- and everybody knows that that person is the favorite cousin. <laughs> You know, and, and and he was that, you know, he was that person that, that was jovial, but he was lost to us from uh, street violence. It was not an unarmed situation where the police shot him, but it was street violence born of the oppression in, in which he lived. But yeah, that smile, um, he was a jokester and he is, he is definitely missed. And, um, you know, I'll add to that, being younger um, than me and moving around like he was still in our hometown, Palm Bluff, Arkansas, stand up, represent. His mother decided to use, my my sister, you know, my big sis, uh, decided to use uh, RIP t-shirts. And this was the first time I participated in this. And an RIP t-shirt, like a t-shirt with somebody's name and maybe their birthday and their death day that everybody wears together. Yeah, yeah. Um, RIP t-shirts are exactly that. And they've gotten more and more elaborate, but you absolutely have a picture of the decedent. Um, There's usually birth and death dates. And then it just goes on to just celebrate, you know, who this person, this person is. And what I'm finding in my own research that there's, there can develop an official RIP t-shirt and then there can be an unofficial one. And it just, it's, it's so um, varied like that and, and just wonderfully cultural in public and private, you know, at the same time. So my sister immediately had 44 commissioned um, at a local uh, t-shirt shop, Novelties, another shout out um, that, you know, we, we had always patronized, went to church with these folks, you know, and she, you know, spent a good amount of money, hundreds of dollars to have these made for close family and friends. But people immediately develop these t-shirts on their own. And what you see is, here's my picture and this is who I was to Willie. I remember going somewhere while I was down there through this whole, you know, week long process. And one of my little cousins that I didn't even know was my little cousin. We're a big family, but you know, my sister's pointing out who is who or whatever. I was with another sister and I was met by her RIP t-shirt. I didn't even really see her. I may, I may have recognized, um, but I, I was, I was met by this huge picture of Willie on a FaceTime call. 
and it was high def, you know, and she was telling me how much she paid, like $50 for this shirt, and she wanted to make sure it was right. So there's a lot going on there. Um, and as I'm continuing to, to write and, and research this, um, I still see it born out of this expressive demand for humanity, last rites ritual. Did. You will see, we wore ours to the wake. My sister wanted that, but people wore it all the week and you, you wear it. It becomes what scholars call ordinary wear, which is usually a t-shirt that Willie may have owned and I wear it and I give it meaning, but the RIP t-shirt takes on that and, and people wear it. But I just, you know, seeing that shirt and not Willie made me sad because I knew if I had this shirt on and I kept seeing everybody with this shirt that that meant I wasn't going to see him. And every time I come home, I see him. My big cousin, one of my big cousins just came up to me and hugged me so fiercely that she left her lip liner imprinted on my sleeve. And I got home and I looked at that because I didn't really know it at the time. And it was just, we gonna be all right. Mm. We gonna, we, 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 it's us, we gonna get through this. And I subsequently was going to teach in China uh, that next summer in uh, 20, yeah, 2018, that summer. And my family, uh, my life mate and our three children couldn't make it because my two older sons was doing basketball tournament um, in Atlanta. And so they, they couldn't come with me. And I knew that if I had, had told Willie, nobody's coming with me. I got you, Auntie. I got you, Auntie Cammy. We got it. And um, I just knew he would have been there. So I took him. I packed my T-shirt. And I went on a bike ride with my TA, Danny, and I, I took him all around China. And it, it, still, it still tears me up because I know he would have been right there. First of all, you know, it's a free plane ticket. You know, <laughs> I pay, or I would have paid for it, right? Um, and second of all, that's, that's my nephew. Um, and I knew he would have had the time or made the time, would have just been right there with me. Well, thank you for telling me a little bit about Willie and sharing him with our listeners today. And and as you were talking, I was thinking about how many people I've heard from who, when their person dies, they wish there was some way they could signal that to the whole world so that people would know they were grieving. And I think about these t-shirts as being so forward in the community with like, this is the person that I loved and I miss, and this is what has happened in my life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's born of resistance. You know, because so much of our mourning hour in the Black community is dismissed. It's, it's just dismissed and it's it's stereotyped to, we're going to put it in your face, you know. And um, I was reading a, a news article. Sasha Turner's work is, is amazing uh, material culture and, and just really puts Black women at the center of that. But the news article had, had referenced her and her, her work and how... Black folks have used T-shirts to make a political statement and make a statement. I, I can remember in the 90s, it's a Black thing you wouldn't understand. You know what I'm saying? I can remember cross colors and, you know, just, just again, how Black folks have used uh, material culture. And there's pushback to that. You know, people do not understand why do you have this on this person died 10 years ago, right? Why do you have this on, or getting new T-shirts? So my, my nephew, his first post-mortem birthday, my sister issued new t-shirts. We had a whole party, bowling. I was not there, but I made sure I bought a t-shirt and I had it here and I've worn it to other things. Um, but it's, it's, and I think that in this Black Lives Matter moment, especially with this George Floyd moment, I think 
um, and I've been curious about this, the next time I wear my t-shirt, how will I be received now is I knew how we were, we were received um, before. How, how were you received? What are your thoughts about how you might be received? Oh, absolutely. Just inappropriate. First of all, why do you put this on a t-shirt? And, and that's not just mainstream white society. There's also um, not this clear consensus in the black community because there's even the idea, there's a story, there's, there's some history there. Black folks would take to the streets um, so when you think about parade and parades and Marcus Garvey in the early 1900s and his United Negro Improvement Association, um, and this was a black leader um, that emerged at this time from Jamaica and again, using material culture and taking to the streets and having this parade and putting black folks in uniform in the early 1900s taken to the streets with funeral, you know, claiming this public space in the middle of Jim Crow. Understand what I'm saying? Jim Crow said that the public park, the public street, the public restaurants, that's, that's, that's for white folks. That, that's for white people. You can go have your own and be separate and equal. And that's why the whole uh, lunch counter, this direct action, um, you know, to, um, to Jim Crow was so important. Black folks did that in death. You can say whatever you want to say. I'm going to have this parade right here on Front Street. And that's what a, a lot of that is. And you still see that, you know, in New Orleans, taking the coffin, taking all of that is that public. Uh, but every Black person wasn't okay with that. If you read with some of the, you know, African-American leaders during that time period, you know, are you giving us a bad name? Look at how you're parading around here. You know, some uh, respectability politics coming in there. But... That, that's still one way to uh, proclaim you're here and, and proclaim your rights as, as an American. Dr. Fletcher, as we come towards sort of the end of our conversation today, I'm wondering what parallels you see from what we've, you've just been talking about with taking to the streets and the parades and the t-shirts with what's happening currently with Black Lives Matter and the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and, and so many other Black Americans and the more public way that everyone is being drawn into or included or exposed to that grief. Yeah, um, it's, it's wonderful. You know, it's, it's wonderful that finally a Black person is mercilessly killed. And we all saw it. We couldn't turn away because we were social distancing. We could not deny that this was murder. George Floyd was handcuffed on the ground, completely detained, and you just still watch while the breath goes out of him. You know, we couldn't turn away. And now we as Americans have acknowledged this person was alive. So now we can acknowledge his death. And that, that's what I keep coming back to anytime I'm in these circles. I'm saying, we're not publicly mourning because you have not acknowledged that this was a real person, a three-dimensional person. That's why I hate this idea of I'm not perfect. This has nothing to do with perfection. A person is three-dimensional. You know, I heard the rapper T.I. say this one time. So, and I'm, I'm, of course, paraphrasing, but he said something similar to I can go to the club on Friday, kiss your girl on Saturday, you know, and lead a march on Sunday. Like I can be all of all of these 
three different things, you know, they don't have to be just mutually exclusive. And in the black community, you have to be perfect. You know, you have to be this, this, this person because you're just combating against uh, white society. And I think now, um, you know, enough is enough. We have to mourn. We're acknowledging that people are living oppressed. You know, people are living oppressed by this system that has their knee on their throat, Reverend Al Sharpton. We're, we're thriving in spite of, you know, this, this, this whole idea of meritocracy is out the window. There is no level playing field. And I hope this opens up discussions. And your question also makes me think about this. So two days ago, or was it just yesterday, where now the Supreme Court has decided you cannot discriminate on the basis of sexuality, right? If you are queer, gay, whatever, you cannot discriminate. That's that watershed African-American civil rights thrust that we're living in. Black folks are pushing for their rights and everybody is, is getting rights. You know, we are in Pride Month. And I think a lot of people don't realize that um, the first Pride was a riot. Stonewall, New York, look that up. Black folks have always been instrumental in pushing for the rights of all. So absolutely, th this is a moment we can recognize people. Today's Juneteenth. We can absolutely recognize that this was about freedom from slavery. And what was that? And just get educated on that. And I think push even more with these historical slave plantations. I've done work there and I've been surprised by the people that are doing, that are there, that are the curators, that are on these executive boards and how we're still telling the story of the white slaveholders. So uh, th this is our moment. Let's keep pushing and let, let's see some real changes, changes that's gonna trickle down in policies and education and, and medical and just real policy making. Well, Dr. Fletcher, I I really appreciate you taking the time today to share your knowledge and also to highlight so many other people that we can be reading and listening and learning from about the history of funeral rights and practices in the Black community, how those were suppressed and oppressed, and how that that all of that still ties to what we see happening in the, in the current day. And I will definitely be linking to the collective for radical death studies where people can be learning more. Are there any other places that people might go in order to connect with you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a very active professional presence on Twitter. Please follow me, Cami Fletcher 36, K-A-M-I-F as in Frank, L-E-T-C-H-E-R 36. You can reach out to me by email, Cami, K-A-M-I at radicaldeathstudies.com. So let's engage. Well, thank you again, Dr. Fletcher, for engaging with me today and with our listeners who are tuning in as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you, everyone out there who's part of our Grief Out Loud listening audience. We appreciate you tuning in and being part of this conversation in this community. If you have any thoughts or ideas about the show or someone you want to suggest as a guest, you can reach out to me at griefoutloud at Dougie.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.